I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. I have a surprise guest. The guest tonight is Matt Parrott. Matt has been a guest in the past on a number of occasions, and I want to welcome him back. It's been a long time. How are you doing, Matt? Well, it's uh, very nice to be back, Greg. I'm doing very well. Uh, enjoying this beautiful day. It's finally uh, starting to cool off here in Indiana after that heat wave, uh, and I'm enjoying it, getting out. Well, great. I We were just reminiscing a bit before we went live, and I remember late last year sometime, I, I saw you mixing it up with a kind of a shady, weird character on Twitter, and we, we sort of uh, had some back and forth with this guy. And I was thinking, you know, I remember a lot of witty things Matt said, writing for Countercurrents over the years, a lot of great political analysis, especially around election time, little turns of phrase that I've stolen, like people need to put aside their humility and lead sometimes, which is a thing that's come to mind many, many times, dealing with sort of, I don't know, reluctant wallflower types uh, in in our movement who really needed to put aside their self-doubts. And so anyway, I I really enjoyed your recent takes on a number of issues. You wrote a very, I thought, honest and, and searching piece on TWP, a retrospective on that. I've been following your Substack, and I very much enjoyed you taking up arms in the ban the ADL struggle. So I thought, well, let's just let's just catch up with Matt Parrott. So what I'd like to do in the first hour is just sort of have an interview about what you've been doing, discuss some uh, some of the current things that are going on, especially the Band the ADL campaign, which I think is really enjoyable and is bringing back a little bit of that 2015, 2016 feeling to me. And then maybe in the second hour, we can do an AMA. And so folks, if you want to ask us anything, Matt hasn't been on this show for a very long time. So get your questions, get your credit card, because we are doing a fundraiser. And let me tell you, folks, 2023 is an absolutely terrible year for movement fundraising. And we're not the only ones in this boat. Our sales of books have been down more than 60% this year. Our fundraising is less than half of what it was at the same time last year. There's a general economic malaise. It's affecting groups outside the movement that do fundraising as well. It's just bad. And a lot of people just don't have disposable income to buy things like books that they used to just buy without thinking about. And so we want to get serious about our fundraiser here because the fundraiser pays to keep people in the fight. We're not putting on lavish banquets with your donations. We're sending money to people who work hard to do articles, podcasts, and things like that, that push forward our message. And there are some people who can't survive without payment. There are others who do it for free, but many can't survive without payment. And we don't want to lose them in the fight. And that's why fundraising is important. Countercurrents was started as a business, a for-profit business. It rapidly turned out to be a nonprofit. That's fine. We're in this to change minds, not to pay dividends to investors and things like that. We created a message. It's a message that I agree with, that I think is true. And then I've searched for people to support it. I didn't go around trying to come up with a message that would gain support. 
that strikes me as intellectually dishonest. So I'm doing it the hard way. I'm doing it with integrity to a vision. And sometimes you just have to take, take lumps. You make sacrifices to do that. But your support is extremely important if we're going to keep people in this fight. So go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, take out your credit card. It's the only way you can use a credit card to send money to us because we've made many powerful merchants very unhappy over the years. And they have blocked us from the credit card processing industry. You can also use Cash App now. Entropy stayed with us the whole time. You can use Cash App as long as that lasts. You can also send DLive tokens. You can send money on you can send money on Odyssey as well. We're streaming on Odyssey and DLive. So anyway, if you want to pick Matt's brain for the first time in many years on Countercurrents Radio, do it today. So let's, uh, let's begin. So Matt, basically the last I heard of you was in 2017 when you shut down the Trad Worker Party. And before we, we started live and then since we started, I, I've heard a little bit of crying in the background and, I, and I, I, I had to know. So if you want to talk about family stuff, just what have you been doing family-wise and activism-wise? And if you want to talk about work, work-wise since 2017, it's six years now. <laughs> Time flies. Uh, well, before I get to anything, I, I did want to do uh, uh, some, some quick shilling. You know, uh, when, when you look at this uh, ban the ADL campaign, the energy behind the ADL is how much money they raise, right? And it, it, it's kind of uh, uh, an inverted thing where the ADL is sitting on, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of donations from people who support what they believe and who, people who support their agenda. And it's, it's not just big corporations and organizations, it's, you know, uh, donors, uh, you know, uh, supporting the ADL. And they take this money and they use it to intimidate corporations to throw the, the weight of their ideas around. But they can't do that without those donations. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Well, while the ADL has been under attack, they've been sending out fundraising letters like, you know, the, the anti-Semites out to get us. Uh, you got to donate a dollar today. But the thing is, is their money goes towards dead memes like our guys regularly ratio jonathan greenblatt and the official adl project you know which is which is just incredible when you think about the leverage of that the the people who donate to our side to your project uh the the other side would kill to have the kind of leverage that that our side has in in, in terms of impact per dollar you know i, I just wanted to make that point yeah the the situation is that we are, whether we like it or not, whether we want to get beyond this or not, we are a movement of the right. Historically, those are our priors. Ideologically, those are our priors. Socially, those are our priors. It's also a baggage in a way, because when the economy goes south, that's when leftists double down. They think, ah, a crisis. We can, we can, we can capitalize that's a dirty word for them, but we can capitalize on a crisis. And so they double down. They, they get big donations flowing in when capitalism is in a crisis. The right, because so many people on the right are bourgeois, capitalist-minded people, when the economy goes south, so do their donations. They think, well, wouldn't it be prudent? Uh, hey, Anheuser-Busch stock is way, way down. We'll buy things when they're cheap, right? And it's just a different mentality and it produces different results. 
There are many people in our movement who say this constantly. I've said it before. There's truth to it that people won't listen to us when they're quote unquote fat, dumb and happy, when the economy's really good, when they can just be carefree and grill and take vacations and buy a new boat or whatever. So we need to have an economic downturn so they'll listen to us. And yes, there's an economic downturn and people are receptive. And so what happens? Well, we find that we have less money to get our message out, whereas the left, which has no solutions whatsoever for a bad economy, in fact, they just make it worse, they are flush with cash. And it's a little asymmetry that over time produces systematic advantages for leftists and disadvantages for anybody who's on the right. And even though we're not Republicans, there's some latent Republicanism in our movement when it comes to the willingness to spend money during times of economic crisis. We want to be battened down our hatches. We want to be prudent. And uh, therefore, it's a paradox when people are more receptive, according to the theory that it's going to take a crisis before they listen. Well, we find that we have less money to get the message out. I always think about Yeats's poem, The Second Coming. There's that great couplet about the worst are filled with passionate intensity and the best lack all conviction. Uh, That haunts me because that asymmetry gives the worst a systematic advantage. If the worst people in the world are constantly keyed up and and psychologically intense, they will sweep away better people who lack that intensity. I, I was thinking of this with the Richard Hanania debacle recently, where he just buckled very, very quickly. The left is completely intellectually bankrupt, and yet they double down on their bullshit and they never give up. Whereas people on the right who have a lot of good things going lack the courage of their convictions and they won't stand by unpopular ideas when they're unmasked. It's, it's just really a sad situation that we're in. And if we play by those rules, we lose. If we always pull back when there's a crisis rather than double down, we lose. If we allow the worst people to go about this with greater psychological intensity than we have, we lose. I think you're muted, Matt. Yeah, sorry. Um, I I got the... Uh, all these babies in the background, I don't, I don't want them uh, um, distracting uh, when you're, uh, you're doing a good monologue. But that, that, that kind of describes where, where things have been since 2017. Got a bunch of kids, doing great, wife and family. But I did take a few months um, a- after after uh, Trad Worker uh, and, and all that uh, to kind of get squared away. And there's, you know, there's never a problem with, uh, you know, taking a sabbatical from the struggle as long as you're getting back in it when you can. And, and since then, I've just kind of been, you know, uh, tirelessly toiling away, not in the formal leadership position uh, as a director of uh, Traditionalist Worker Party, but yeah, that's 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 only one way to contribute and, and be involved. And this 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 is a you know a, a sort of a calling for me, a lifetime struggle. I, it's been literally decades now. It's a frightening to think how long I've been at this, but uh, yeah, when you really think about it. The amount of progress we've made since I've gotten involved and really since you've gotten involved, like who who gets to enjoy that kind of progress with their life's work, you know, especially if you imagine around 2007, 2005, how depressing the pro-white political space was, how geriatric, confused, frustrated, depressed, 
and now like the, there's just so much momentum there are so many opportunities you know the the most frustrating the, the thing you get frustrated about is the unwillingness to you know pick up all of these opportunities that you know, are raining raining down and you know I, I think a lot of people a lot of listeners showed up during kind of the the big Donald Trump thing where we thought we were you know everybody thought the God Emperor Trump was going to take over the world and they see us now as like not doing as well as then. But, but Jesus Christ, if you look at the life cycle of, of where white identity has been in the past and where it is now with all these mainstream conservatives getting bullied into making explicit pro-white statements with, you know, mainstream candidates for presidential office defending white people on record in ways you wouldn't have been able to imagine a decade ago. It's a very exciting time to be involved. And I, you know, I've, I've been very much involved. So I got involved almost exactly 16 years ago in the movement full-time, more than 23 years ago, I got involved. It was Labor Day of the year 2000 that I stepped into the first semi-public space in the movement when I went and saw David Irving speak at a Greek diner in Atlanta. And I met Sam Dixon that day. I met a number of other people that I've, I knew for years after that. Some of them have now died. And it was in September of 2007 that I became the editor of the Occidental Quarterly. And I'm trying to place what year I got to know you, but you and I go pretty far back to, to you know, certainly before the foundation of Countercurrents, which was in 2010. And yes, the scene has changed so dramatically since then. Uh, there were ideas that I discussed in our little meetings about secession, for instance. That was one of the things that I was very interested in as a philosophical topic. This uh, professor at Emory, now retired Donald Livingston, was very interested in secession as a topic in political philosophy as a defender of the South. And he got me talking about that within our circles and people would roll their eyes and think, oh, that's pie in the sky. It'll never happen. And now Secession, national divorce is a is becoming a mainstream Republican talking point. That's a huge change. I remember in 2011 when two terms were coined: one, white genocide, and the other, the Great Replacement. Those were marginal in our sphere. And I actually talked to Tim Murdoch, Horace the White Rabbit. He said that I was the first person outside of their circles to interview him about the white genocide meme. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at the time, but he, he mentioned that. That meme has gone from being something marginal to something that large numbers of Republicans and uh, sort, of, sort of right of center people, populist-minded people now believe is happening. The, there, there is a great replacement going on. That's tremendous progress. It's, it's quite breathtaking. Uh, when you have somebody like Charlie Kirk saying that the ADL is a purveyor of anti-white hate, yes, he took it down, but he <laughs> put something back up that was uh, still pretty spicy. I think that's huge progress. I think that there's reason to be hopeful. Uh, and yeah, we all got extremely giddy during the Trump time. And then there were many, many disappointments after that, most notably Trump. But our ideas haven't, our ideas have not been declining in their reach and popularity, even when our movement has had its ups and downs. 
people are getting the message. It's, it's moving through channels that we don't even understand sometimes. And I, I find that very exciting when things pop up and you suddenly have a sign that, oh my gosh, this is actually having an effect. Right. Yeah. yeah. To, to see the harvest of, of previous work, I, I think there's no like greater uh, disparity between like the, the harvest and the lack of credit for harvest than with uh, the, the white genocide, the mantra with Bob Whitaker's campaign where they, they, they really set out to like, hey, let's just focus on this moral message. Uh, and that, that's, that's one thing I take very seriously is winning the moral argument. So often in this movement, everybody wants to kick over the ladder and be like, you know, uh, forget morality, you know, the only, you know, the, the strong, you know, you know, should crush the weak, blah, blah, blah. But no. Um, A strange yeah. argument to make when you're the weak being crushed <laughs> by the strong, but let's set that aside. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's it, it, These are totally delusional people and they, they dominate a lot of the kind of like ideas space and the, the, the sort of the white genocide meme is almost kind of a revolt against those people and saying, let's just take a, a strong, the, the fact that we're correct. I, like for me, like the, the fact that we are right, both morally and we're just, you know, correct, uh, is it, sort of our Excalibur sword. And we keep wanting to bring a slingshot. We keep wanting to bring a paintball gun. We keep wanting to bring every weapon to this fight, but the, the sort of Excalibur sword that has such tremendous leverage. And that's the fact that, you know, uh, framed the correct way, uh, understood the correct way, we are correct. We deserve to win. And, you know, with the, uh, with the mantra, it put forward that message and they're like, just keep repeating this over and over again until your fingers bleed. And, you know, um, you have carpal tunnel and um, you can no longer type this message. And, you know, they, they basically broke um, every uh, newspaper comment section, all the, the, the social media. You, you really just had to have been there to, you know, it got eye rolling to, you know, you'd be trying to read any comment section anywhere and then you'd see the mantra, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they would even come to countercurrents and type the mantra in. And it was like, guys, <laughs> I appreciate your fanaticism, <laughs> but we're not, we, we we're already yeah. with you. you yeah. Know? We, we, we got the memo. We're good. You know, and that, that's, that's kind of a funny thing about kind of repetition that you got to kind of keep in mind is that like, if, if you're right in the factory, you know, if you're right in, you know, the restaurant making the cheeseburgers all day, they can be kind of nauseating after a while. Um, but that that's kind of part of it is is tolerating that kind of repetition. I think we've, you know, there there's kind of like a a novelty seeking, you know, hot take seeking urge to like have a completely novel take. When it's like, well, you know, new ideas are great, and by all means, you know, keep uh, keep being creative and exploring new ideas and stuff. But at the same time, like there there are these things that we're correct about and we should you know center our messaging on the basics you know the the fact that white people deserve the same rights uh, as as everyone else the the fact that you know uh, white people should be able to look forward to a future that they have control over themselves and their destiny and community these are obviously right things and you know being correct sort of can transcend a lot of you know uh uh, boundaries and limitations and obstacles that uh, a lot of these clever ideas uh, for how to get ahead uh, don't end up um, transcending. I completely agree about the moral battle, especially. There are people that I really like in this movement, but then they'll come out with stuff like morality doesn't matter. Morality is an, is an artifact of power. It's like, if that's true, then it's hopeless. 
Or people will say, ideas don't matter because if you control the media, you can make people think whatever you want. Well, no, if again, if that's true, it's entirely hopeless. And if ideas don't matter, then why do they feel the need to control the media and constantly put their message out? Obviously, they feel that you have to convince people that what they're doing is true and good in order to, to, to make it go, go forward. And, and so we, we constantly get these messages that politics is all about greed and fear. It's all about power. Uh, it's all about money and violence. And then, and then you paint yourself into a corner that way because we don't have any money and we don't have the ability to use violence. So what do we do? We complain on the internet, but there, that's, we're told that that's completely worthless. You can't complain on the internet. That won't, that won't do any help, they say, on the internet. Yeah, it's, it's moralizing against morality and politically arguing on the internet against politically arguing on the internet. It, it's it's uh, self-negating buffoonery, you know? <laughs> it's like- yeah, yeah. It's the, the great advantage that we have is that we're right, not just factually right, on important matters about politics, diversity, race, et cetera, but morally right about the, the solutions to the problems that beset us. The, the greatest problems that beset people in the world today come from basically multiculturalism, globalization, the domination of one group over others against their rights, against their self-determination, attacking people's identity. These are the great problems. We have a moral critique of that and a workable political alternative. And yet we have people who say, no, we must throw away our advantage and we must fight them where they're strongest rather than where, where we're strongest. We must fight them in terms of money and power. And then what happens is you get the movement turning into investment schemes if you're sort of the on the Republican end of the spectrum and you want to get money or, you know, activism schemes, marching schemes, if, uh, if you're more, I guess, on the activist end of the spectrum. And there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with activism. But we have to realize the asymmetries here. We don't have the power to, ch- to challenge the, the rulers of this country for control of a single street. We don't have the, the, the power to do that. And we don't have the money to challenge these people in court, for instance. And so if that's what the battle depends on, we're just doomed. But we do have something that they lack. We have truth and right on our side, and they have lies and evasions and cover-ups. And if we focus on where we're strong and they're weak, we make some such progress, which is why we made a lot of progress, I think, in the intellectual sphere. And it, it disturbs me. And I've seen these patterns, and you've seen these patterns over and over again. Old, bad arguments come back over and over again, which is why I guess you have to repeat the good arguments over and over again. Old, bad arguments. I wrote a piece called... Tough talk from a hard man, in parentheses, on the internet. And it, it's, it's this uh, tough talk about how ideas don't matter and it's all about physical force delivered in a sort of uh, macho, blustering way, like this is your coach or your drill sergeant, on the futility of online activism and just complaining on, online, and it's all delivered on the internet. <laughs> It, it, and it happens over and over again. Most recently, 
in the, I think, transparently jealous denigration of the great campaign that our guy, Keith Woods, has spearheaded to ban the ADL on Twitter. And I, I really have enjoyed your participation in, in that discussion about the ban the ADL discussion and the discussions around it. I just think this is a wonderful example of how online discourse actually can have important political consequences. Well, yeah, with the, with the ban the ADL, I, I certainly have uh, played a minor role in uh, hyping that in compared to, of course, Keith. You really got it rolling, and uh, then then uh, other people started taking off with. And it's, you know, the, the the thing about you know the ADL throwing people under a bus is, you know, when you're throwing people under a bus, you got to be mindful that you not throw enough people under the bus that they can pick it up and throw it. You know, <laughs> you gotta uh, watch how many people you are under your bus, and that that's uh, what the 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 reason it took fire was you had all these people from all all kinds of corners of the political space who were like, yeah, the ADL has silenced me. Yeah, the ADL has intimidated uh, my organization. The ADL has you know kicked me offline. It's uh, you know a lot of minority voices, a lot of foreigner voices, and including a lot of conservative Jewish voices too. Right, um, the the libs of TikTok lady, this uh, Orthodox Jewish woman, the ADL had uh, been demanding that she be deplatformed, presumably for anti-Semitism. You know, it's it's hard to tell. Uh, it, but Matt. But Matt, the fact that the libs of TikTok lady likes ban the ADL, doesn't that discredit the ban the ADL campaign? Doesn't the <laughs> fact that Laura Loomer uh, and Ashley St. Clair have weighed in in favor of ban the ADL, doesn't that simply discredit the campaign? Isn't this obvious? Just obviously just Jewish tricks here? I've never had the conspiracy mindset, perhaps a fault. I I, I don't know. Um, I, I think I think it's more of a personality type. But I just um, uh, the the idea that taking on the ADL directly, the most uh, uh, visible uh, representation of corrupt organized Jewish power in Western civilization. Um, it's the most it's, it's the most out there uh, institution. Uh, and they have made a lot of enemies, including a lot of diverse, you know, enemies, right? Because they are, they, 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 they operate like a shakedown cartel. You know, you, you will, you will do the following things and ban the following people, or we will uh, call your advertisers and have your business shut down. Yeah, you know, that's, that's their whole shtick. They don't hide it. And the, the idea that, uh, Opposing that is somehow uh, not a, a useful use of time. To raise awareness of that and to get people on our side against the ADL is somehow a, a waste of time compared to contrasted with in a false dichotomy with like um, meeting at a conference or any anything else you could do, passing out flyers. Like, why would you construct that dichotomy? What the hell is wrong with you? And at that point, if... One thing I struggle with, if if they are as smart as these people say they are, if everything we do is two or three steps behind these wicked people who are uh, over us, uh, then it's really, you know, uh, maybe we can't win anyway. But I, I'm I'm of the firm belief that these people are not as smart as they think as they think they are, or we think they are. The conspiracy theorists think they are. I don't think their their power is as hegemonic as they assume. I think a lot of it's very leveraged and reputational in nature. I think uh, I think a lot of people are, you know, 
uh, not not our guys people, but just a lot of business people and stuff resent the the ADL um, and their power to just walk into their business and, and tell them how they're going to run it or they're going to sick their Jewish mafia on them. And I, I think a lot of Jews, frankly, are uncomfortable with with their their tactics as well. And I'm I'm not going to chase them off or make make that a uh, make that an issue with it, right? I mean, right. Uh, the the whole argument that somebody like Libs of TikTok or Amy Wax or uh, Laura Loomer discredits a position that we like because they like it is absurd. And it's it's the kind of argument that, I don't know, the ADL would put forward. My attitude when you get these, oh, this discredits, this person discredits this idea, is, is to say, well, first of all, I mean, the fancy thing to say, the, the logical thing to say is that, no, people don't discredit ideas. Ideas are either true or false, and it doesn't really matter who agrees with them or disagrees with them. But the quicker, easier, more effective way rhetorically of dealing with this is just to flip the script and say, oh, no. Laura Loomer doesn't discredit the AD, uh, ban the ADL. If Laura Loomer agrees with ban the ADL, that's to Laura Loomer's credit. <laughs> you never allow them to question the worthwhileness of this project, of this project, by saying, "Oh, this this bad person likes it," you you never you never waver, you never grant them an inch. You simply say, "Ah, this project is so sterling, this is so good that it it's a credit to Laura Loomer to get on board. It's a credit to Libs of TikTok to get on board. If Amy Wax got on board, it would be a credit to Amy Wax, and so on and so forth." Uh, that's that's the way I handle these well, things. And they're, they're always talking about how, like, um, uh, the people who are out to get us are always uh, playing both sides of us against each other. And it's like, so maybe, and not even on purpose, maybe if that happens on the other side, if if they're conservative Jewish people who resent the, the direction the ADL is pulling things, want to join us in criticizing the ADL, that's great. I just think a lot of people spend way too much time kind of overthinking in these kind of hamster wheel style ways that right. uh, don't, don't add a whole lot of value. Yeah, the, the, I'm sure there are people saying the fact that Keith Woods promoted this discredits the idea. No, no. H having a serious question about this corrupt enemy of freedom of speech is such a worthwhile thing that if white nationalists are on board with that, that's to the credit of white nationalists like Keith Woods. That's, that's how to, we should look at it. We gain credit for agreeing with wonderful ideas, things that ought to happen. We can't bring any discredit to these ideas, but we gain credit for helping promote them and aligning ourselves with them. That's just how it works. That's, those are the rules, people. Those are the rules. That's how the universe works. Well, if, um, if you look at this pressure campaign, um, like Ben Shapiro, uh, he didn't jump onto it early. He, he waited as long as he could <laughs> before right. he finally weighed in. He's like, okay, you know, he kind of had a segment uh, where, where he was like, okay, yeah, the ADL is garbage. But he, you know he didn't want it on these terms. You know he didn't right. want to have the He wanted to be talking about something else. But, you know, uh, we, uh, very broadly, we used the truth and a real issue here 
to force to escalate the discourse, you know, and, and to where these powerful institutional people are are forced to respond, are are, are forced to react, and, and that's uh, that that's tremendous leverage. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So, uh, another thing that I've been noticing a lot in this debate, aside from the false dichotomy of activism versus online is the the setting up of all kinds of false measures of success. So people will say, this won't amount to anything if Elon doesn't actually ban the ADL. This won't amount to anything if Elon doesn't actually sue the ADL. Look, here's a tweet from Elon. Tattoo this on your forehead. He's wavering. Uh, and I just have no patience for that. My basic belief about this is that this was a win from the moment it started trending. It's a win because hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people now have been exposed to many voices, including people they regarded as authoritative, like Charlie Kirk or Libs of TikTok or Laura Loomer or whoever, seconding this motion and entering this conversation about a very powerful Jewish organization that's opposed to the First Amendment, basically, and tries to censor people and engages in very corrupt blackmail, extortion-like ra racketeering to enforce their censorship agenda. That was a win. Uh, and that win has been entered into the permanent records of the universe. That will never be undone. And it will not be undone if in the end... Elon Musk cucks, or he decides not to sue, or he sues and it gets thrown out of court, or on and on and on. Those would be disappointing, but they don't change the fact that the conversation has been had, new minds have been opened, and the conversation will take on a life of its own, even outside of Twitter. I would love to have a conversation not about banning the ADL on Twitter. Let's have a conversation about banning it politically in the real world, as a agent of foreign influence, as a racketeering influenced corrupt organization, as a foreign affiliated domestic spy network. There are many, many things that the ADL is that should attract the attention of legislators. That's the next step that I would like to see this uh, well, go to. Uh, but you know, well, it, it, I, I don't want to completely uh, discount the possibility of like a, an actual escalation with this this actually going to court with ADL files and, and the full spectacle that would definitively be a, a a win by the the first metric, right? You, you always, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I always say, you know, you know, shoot for the stars, land on the moon, right? Um, <laughs> right. And and uh, yeah, um, actually, just uh, running the ADL out of town, they have to close the doors, putting their putting all their belongings in a cardboard box. That'd be magical. But if you if you really look at like uh, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push or the SPLC, you, you see a pattern here with the, the, the same shakedown organizations falling into the partisan polarity vortex and then getting stuck in there um, and, and then losing their uh, ability to, to shake down. And eventually somebody shakes them back and, and then they're just done. 
because it's, it's, it's ultimately a confidence scam. It's kind of a Ponzi scheme of intimidated people, right? And a few years ago, the SPLC reached, reached that point where people say, oh yeah, the SPLC says this guy's evil. Okay. And a few years before that, it was like, oh yeah, Jesse Jackson says that guy's racist. Okay. And we've already, in my opinion, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we've reached a, a point in the culture war where if the ADL says somebody is, you know, uh, an, an anti-Semite, people will be like, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, if the ADL says he's anti-Semitic, that must be legit. I, I think we're, we're already kind of there. We'll see. Uh, but the, these things don't, you know, there is no definitive point at which, the, you know, the SPLC is still limping along, thinking it's relevant, doing their little research, publishing their little reports and, you know, thinking. Uh, th They're sitting on relevant. hundreds of millions of dollars. So they'll be around a long, long time after they have zero relevance. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It kind of zombie relevance, and that's probably what you, that's realistically what we might expect to come from the ADL thing, where they're, they're still going around, you know, trying to do ADL stuff, but they have nothing of the, the, the cultural or institutional cachet to actually, you know, be like, hey, Facebook, we got a list here, people that uh, you're going to kick off, or we're going to pull your advertisers. You know, I, I think that actually, you know, Elon was big enough to shake back at, at their shakedown. And, you know, the bubble might already be popped. We, we, we don't know. But uh, all I know, you know, working in analysis and stuff, you, you have your key performance indicators, right? And for me, a key performance indicator is, you know, how many people were talking about organized Jewish power and the Anti-Defamation League uh, last week. And you're talking about tens of millions of people. The metrics are there, right? I think that's a strong metric. Now, if your metric is, okay, well, you know, you didn't elect a white nationalist president, or you didn't stack exactly 450 people in a barn, or you, you can come up with whatever metric you want and then say, oh, well, the person didn't meet my metric. It's a failed project. I, you know, I don't care. You have ideas, you have individuals, and you have institutions. And we, we, we need good ideas, good individuals, and good institutions. And I, I've seen your, your support of that uh, Homeland Institute uh, thing, and that, that's awesome. And Counterparents itself is another example of a good institution. I mean, we do need more than just individuals who agree with us and good ideas. We, we need to have all, all three of those things coordinated. So, you know, when people are like, you know, don't spread ideas, that's a waste of time, that's internet addiction. You got to be uh, supporting our institution specifically. I'm like, you know, I want to support any pro-white institution, but if they're saying don't spread ideas, uh, that's, um, I'm just going to kind of steer clear of that because that's, we got to have all three, right? You know, winning people over, we got to be, you know, uh, hitting the meme more. If, if, you know, you got your little Pepe account and it's just hammering away every day, that makes a difference. Yeah, it's made a tremendous difference. Years ago, I, I noticed this pattern of the new up-and-coming internet movement guy. He gets a website, he gets a P.O. box, and then he goes out in search of a, a clientele, a following, and he thinks, well, this guy has a following, this group has a following. I'll just launch a series of public attacks on them, and that'll, that'll get people to come over to our group and so they do this and they have a little internet war. And what happens is never a 50-50 or a 20-40 split, or, you know, a 20-80 split. It's, it's very, very different from, the, from that. What happens, and this is, this is a, something that Sam Dixon and Mark Weber have said, I give them credit for that. 
you might have a situation where you have this this strife, this breakaway group, or uh, some in, internet infighting, or something like that. And at the end, you have twenty percent of the people have uh, have are with the old guard, and twenty percent of the people are with the new guy who's up and coming. And the rest were just so disgusted and exhausted by the whole thing that they've checked out and they might be gone forever or they'll be waiting around for something else to come along. And it's, it's self-defeating. It's, uh, it's in the self-interest of the people who engage in this kind of behavior because it does build their brand, it does build their following. But in terms of the movement as a whole, the movement ecology as a whole, it's extremely selfish and self-defeating and self-destructive. And that's what I think is happening here. And I'm wondering if, okay, I've, I've always said, look, we, we shouldn't be caught up in a scarcity mentality here. We shouldn't be in, in, locked in zero-sum competition with one another. If we think that way, then suddenly our worst enemy becomes the guy who agrees with me on 99 out of 100 points, rather than the people who are trying to shut us down entirely. And that's just a perverse thing to do to yourself and to do to the cause, is to start, uh, start yourself on the path of thinking of our own people as your rivals and enemies. What we have to do is have this idea that if there's a rising tide, it'll float all boats. We should try and be gracious about other people's successes rather than transparently jealous of them. We can't be driven by a scarcity mentality into zero-sum competition. However, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sure that the current you know, depression or recession, whatever you want to call it, especially in movement fundraising, could be instilling this kind of scarcity mentality. It could be getting people to think, I've, I've got to battle against the rest of the movement to, for, for followers and bucks because the, the money's getting scarce. And so we get locked in competition with one another. You get people who suddenly wish to monopolize the cause, uh, to be the only voice in the cause. And so they think, well, we've just got to silence all these other groups, silence all these other voices, denigrate these other approaches and things like that. It's extremely selfish and extremely destructive for the greater good of the cause, though. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of it you can you can tune out. And I think the, the the audience and supporters and members eventually grow bored with and see see through that stuff. Though, um, I think I, I think sometimes um, uh, the the only time you really need to respond to that negativity is when somebody's making uh, an egregiously false claim, like um, uh, when when the Bandy ADL tag came out, um, this jealous rival. Um, who considers the rest of the movement his enemy, came out with these telegram posts saying that, well, Keith Woods is controlled opposition and all this. It's like, Jesus Christ, um, just can you not just shut up and let a Twitter hashtag, you're not even on Twitter. Thanks to Elon. Thank you, Elon. Can you just shut up and let the hashtag do its thing and focus on your own project? But no, it's, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about, that kind of um, um, zero-sum um, thinking uh, thinking that you're at that point where it's time to, you know, wipe up, wipe up all your rivals and then go take power or whatever, whatever, you know, historical narrative power trip you're on or whatever. It's like, 
Um, and, and that's the, I, I generally think, you know, 99% of the time you, you can just kind of ignore, especially if it's what I would consider constructive criticism. Like um, if, if they write an article saying that these people are doing it all wrong. I mean, that's fair, even if it's harsh, even if it's mean, as long as it's not making like egregious attacks, right? Uh, and that, that, that's kind of where I draw the line and go ahead and uh, and like, um, uh, no, no. Um, uh, that's uh, I'm 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 going to wade into the swamp on that one and uh, push back on that. So, where do you envision white identity politics going from here in the next five or ten years? Um, uh, this this presidential cycle has been uh, um, disappointing in in some ways for identity politics compared to say 2016 or whatever, but it's actually been better than 2020. You, you do have these opportunities for sort of polarization and entering dissident ideas. I, I, I don't know where you're at with them, but I've, I've really been enjoying Vivek has been uh, pushing a lot of ideas out there that have been able to uh, kind of hype and stuff. And um, there, there's been, there's been a fun atmosphere of uh, uh, pushing, uh, pushing the envelope of ideas uh, that often um, happens in the primaries, you know, and and we we've got to enjoy that. Uh, as far as uh, long term, like I'll be voting for Trump. Okay, obviously, as you know, I've I'm super disappointed in Trump. Blah blah blah. But at, at the end of the day, you know, even if you don't like the coach, you're you're still kind of on a team, right? And I, I think I, I think a lot of dissident intellectuals have a hard time accepting that they are on the MAGA team whether they like it or not, you know, I'd, I'm, I'm the first um, to uh, object to so much of what, what's considered MAGA in terms of like the, the culture and the political goals and stuff, but uh, that, that's got to be an internal critique and that we need to drive home because the, the minute you start, you know, uh, thinking of yourself as outside that, um, you end up in kind of a Richard Spencer, Evan McLaren, La La Land where you're just opposed to the, the very team where that, that is kind of the, the, the white American ethnic tribe, in my opinion. Um, and as far as that goes, I, I kind of like um, am ambivalent about whether he wins or not. My, my fantasy scenario is Kamala Harris ending up president by accident, in which you have an unelected, overtly anti-white lady who is the most irritating, boring, stupid, you know, uh, political actor on the national stage, uh, right there blasting her terrible, terrible ideas into the national stage. That, that, that could be tremendously electrifying <laughs> for our cause. I, I, I think uh, the, the partisan polarity vortex is going to keep spinning faster and faster until we have some kind of, um, I don't know exactly what, what form it will take. Uh, you know, one, one shouldn't get too specific for a couple of reasons, both because you don't know and because it's unwise to get too specific what that'll take. But what's happening is that the, the two halves of America are not getting along and they're escalating. And uh, the, the voices who try to kind of uh, be in the middle uh, get torn up by both sides. And that's just splitting wider and wider, right? And I, I think that's going to continue to happen. And our, our role in that is on the right side of that. If you think you're on the left side of that or outside of that, okay, that that's great. I disagree. Uh, to be like the, the pro-white faction within that broader coalition and to figure out how to behave in a manner that makes sense 
relative to that macro political context, right? To, to be, you know, where explicitly pro-white ideas, explicitly pro-white organizations uh, can, can thrive in that future space, which is developing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this election campaign, certainly more than 2020. 2020 was very disappointing. I, I loved 2015 and 2016, the, the, the Trump campaign. But in a certain way, Trump won his greatest victories the first day that he announced his campaign when he dissented about globalization and, and immigration. Uh, and he put that out there as a live political issue. The establishment was in lockstep about not competing on that. He put that back into play. Millions, tens of millions of people now want that. They don't want the true cons. They don't want the Republicans. They, they don't want to go back to GOP as usual. And, and Trump has changed things permanently. Uh, even though once he got elected, he was rather a disappointment. He still changed the parameters of political debate. And I just don't see those parameters being ratcheted back to where they were pre-Trump. We're in a redefined political reality, and it's a reality in which we have enormous advantages because a lot of people want what we want, and they sense that they can get it through politics. They, they need the right guy. That's, that's a huge a huge step forward, in my opinion. It's a victory that we will st we will be cashing in on for decades to come. And it was very disappointing in 2020 when Trump didn't run as the old Trump. He ran as a as a Republican, conventional Republican. He ran on the good economy and Gibbs for blacks black people and stuff like that. And he won again. <laughs> Uh, and, and I didn't want that to happen. I wanted him to lose. Uh, I thought he deserved to lose by running a Republican campaign because the sooner that old fashioned Republican stuff loses and simply cannot you know, give them any hope to, to you know, keep it going, the sooner we actually get the, uh, a more permanent populist realignment. I, who knows what Trump is going to run on this time? I, I, I'm, I'm very checked out of the consequences of this. I, I just look forward to the polarization. Well, exactly. I, my, my take is, you know, why I defend my green light, red light, green light isn't that I changed my opinion. It's that Trump is changing his. If, if, uh, the, the thing is, uh, green light in 2016 was the best because he was running on these implicitly pro-white issues across the board, like on, on the immigration and, and the culture war stuff. Uh, in 2020, like you said, he ran as a conventional Republican um, in a context where he was actually sort of a retardant on uh, the political discourse. And now in 2024, he's, a, he's more than ever really pushing the polarization and accelerating the credibility crisis in terms of being like, you know, the, the other side here are not just rivals, they're evil. And, and that's an important part of where we as a movement need to get to is, you know, first first have that bifurcation of the political, you know, almost ethnogenic bifurcation of America into these separate camps that uh, don't speak the same political language, don't, and they're, they're starting to not even live together anymore. They're, you're, you're starting to see sort of general migrations between the red and the blue, right? And uh, within that red context, 
is a context where we can win, where we can um, where we can push ideas like that the civil rights reframing of you know our, our you know our Republican stuff is garbage. That's you know, um, and, and you saw you saw that uh, you know when uh, Vivek was on a space with Elon Musk and uh, uh, Richard Hananya, and they were talking about how like the, the the civil rights legal framework in America has gotten out of control and has had this ratcheting effect of, you know, and they use terms like the woke mind virus and stuff. And now these people are pro-white. A lot of them aren't even white, right? You know, two thirds of the people in that conversation uh, literally were not white. Uh, but uh, at the same time, like that, that's pushing it in, in the direction of white identity. And it's a conversation you can never have on the other side of the table where they have this neoliberal, neocolonial framing of whiteness and white identity as evil. Yeah. yeah. Where do you even start with that? How do you, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we, we need to get away from those people and, and encourage this uh, polarization. Trump is Trump is achieving that in 2024. It's, it's obviously not my fantasy play where he um, does that. Plus is also leaning out to the immigration issues and stuff like he did in 2016. But I, I can support this. I, 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 you know, I, I will continue shilling for Vivek uh, up until uh, up until that becomes completely absurd. Because right. I, I, I think a vote for Vivek is a vote for a, a more aggressive Trump uh, in a way uh, to, right. to overanalyze it. But e either way, um, I, I don't know. I, I see opportunities here. It's not 2016 again, but this is not 2020 either. There, there are a lot of opportunities to get our ideas out there, to push the culture war, to escalate. So I, I've been having fun with it. Hanania, you and Hanania were publishing at Countercurrents and TOQ online. You were publishing at Countercurrents and TOQ online at the same time. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, there's a piece by Michael Lind called The Return of the Eugenicons. Michael Lind wrote a very good book called The New Class War, which I really liked. He's, he's a leftist, but he is a populist and he has a lot of good ideas. And he, he laid out a lot of the reasons why Trump was successful and why national populism is going to be here to stay for a long time. And in this piece, of course, he trots out all the, the standard dog and pony show stuff about, oh, eugenics led to the Holocaust, et cetera. You can't have that. And uh, he seems to endorse basically the social construction of race, yada, yada, yada. And it's easy to roll your eyes at that kind of stuff and, and just think, uh, well, this guy is hopeless. But he does make a very good point. He says, he, he, he just brings up quotes from eugenicists of the past, what snobs these people were. <laughs> and uh, snobs against their own flesh and blood, snobs against the, uh, the, their own extended racial family. And of course, eugenicism and human biodiversity and cognitive elitism, it doesn't map out onto racialism. Uh, in fact, uh, there are a lot of people who are big miscegenationists. They're just choosy, choosier about who, uh, with whom they would miscegenate. And it's a problem. When you look at it that way, it's a problem. I think that a populist movement cannot touch this extremely snobbish discourse that uh, you look at old Mark I eugenics, and it's full of uh, contempt for poor white people, basically. We can't have that as part of a uh, 
uh, as part of a new populist movement. And so uh, Lynn's piece is full of, of bad ideas and bad takes, but it does give me pause on this one issue. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the whole cognitive elitist strand that was certainly part of the old alt-right. Well, my my kind of awakening, I was you know really excited about my my IQ score when I was in elementary school, um, and everybody you know, and in seventh grade I I got the bell curve when it was first published because you know I'd, I'd seen that people were talking about this book about how smarter people are better than everyone else. And I immediately, you know, that I was like, oh, I've got my own Bible uh, that just got printed. I'm going to read this. And uh, in a lot of ways, that was kind of where I first got started down this road. But in my early 20s, I kind of had like a, a, a maturation, a maturity moment where I was like, there's a lot correct here. But like being smarter is not the only thing that matters. And I love my family more than I love somebody who's smarter than my family, you know, and that that. I kind of reached a fork in a road where I was like, you know, um, you could go in the Hanania direction where you just kind of like see yourself as belonging to this tribe of the smarter people, or you can, you know, go down this uh, faith family folk perspective, which I've, I've chosen, where you don't look at it like that at all. You, you, you know, you know, being, being smarter is generally better. And don't worry, um, uh, yeah, I'm not as smart as I thought I was then. Uh, not nearly. Uh, um, that wouldn't even be possible anyway. But uh, even even you know relative to anything. But uh, you know when I I see Hanania I, uh, with some of his takes, I always cringe because it brings me back to when I was like 14 years old, thinking it was really just that simple that there were these people who did better on this test, um, and the world belonged to them, and they were, everybody else was just stupid. And it's, it's such a contemptible, myopic, um, nasty little way to look at the world. But. Uh, and unfortunately, that's a that's a huge, like you said, that's a huge current in our movement. And uh, um, yeah, I've I've always uh, been been on the other side of that argument as long as I've been publicly active in politics. Mm -hmm. I think that it's tempting to argue that well, you should love white people because white people score really well on tests because white people build rockets. And white people have orderly societies and white people compose lovely music and things like that. And, and if you're arguing to people who have no racial identity at all or who are not white, that's the way that you do it. You know, it's like a way of opening the conversation up, uh, showing uh, by a whole wall chart of metrics that white people are really good in certain areas. But uh, I, I remember a piece that Joe Sobrin wrote back in the 90s. Uh, he, it was about this, we're number one American chauvinist stuff. And he said, this is no way to uh, run a country. It's, this is no reason to love your country. Do the people of Switzerland not love Switzerland because it's not the most powerful country in the world. <laughs> Americans seem to love America conditionally if it's number one in a whole bunch of categories. And it's certainly not number one in quite a lot of leading indicators of, of human well-being. In fact, it's, it's very far behind a lot of other countries in these, in these metrics. But Americans think that we're number one and we love America because it's number one. And I thought that was very beautiful. Uh, the, the point he was making is that true national feeling and also true 
ethnic feeling, true racial feeling, true solidarity with other human beings is not based on objective criteria. You love them because they're your own. And if white people were as sorry by all these objective metrics as say the Aborigines of Australia, and I was an, you know, I would still love them uh, because they're my own. Uh, and so in a way, uh, you, you just sort of set aside this uh, discourse about racial superiority and, and so forth. Uh, yeah, I would say white people are superior to other groups by many me measures. I don't deny it. But those aren't the reasons why I love my own people. I love right. them because they're my own. And it's not objective in that sense at all. Right. It, it, it kind of circles back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, uh, you can write any story you want with your key performance indicators, right? If if it's about being really great at math and uh, um, solving uh, uh, solving certain puzzles or, or you know, uh, that that kind of thing, then no, uh, whites are objectively inferior, right, um, to, to other groups. Uh, there, there are certain athletic, cultural, whatever pursuits that other other humans are just intrinsically better at. And, uh, you know, um, you could come up with this Charles Murray human accomplishment thing where you try to kind of create a metametric and then win it. But I, it just seems I, I don't want to have the I don't want to have the argument. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I love my people. I shouldn't have to defend it. Um, nobody else has to defend it. Nobody else has to justify why they love their extended family. It's kind of a sick thing to try to corner someone about when you think about it. Right. Um, no, I, I, I want my people to thrive and do well. Um, and to have, have a bright future and, you know, uh, have a future at all. And that, that, that's why I've been in the struggle for my entire adult life. And, you know, uh, Lord willing, we'll remain in it. <laughs> <laughs>